This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 52 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. And on this episode, we're going to be discussing security and geopolitics in the Arctic, particularly the role of Russia in the effect of NATO expansion on the security situation in the region. Very timely, of course, with so much going on in the past months and a year and a half or so. And we're very uh, pleased to have joining us for this discussion. It's a very important and very current discussion. We have Katarzyna Zisk, Professor of International Relations and Contemporary History at the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies, which is part of the Norwegian Defense University College. Professor Zisk, thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Great. So let's get right into it. You're an expert on a number of aspects of uh, Arctic security and geopolitics, particularly Russia. And uh, let's start with that. How has Russia's invasion and ongoing war in Ukraine affected its strategy and military posture in the Arctic? It's it is, it's it's a question that has been um, looked into uh, since since the beginning of the invasion, and and there is a number of ripple effects both on the regional. Uh, security uh, situation on the cooperation and governance regime and also on the Russian security uh, posture and Russian Arctic strategy. It's not clear cut for because on the one hand, um, uh, we've seen that Russia, despite being bogged down in Ukraine, despite suffering a number of, of negative military, socioeconomic, political consequences of, of the war, Russia, contrary to expectations by many, have not deprioritized the Arctic, which is, you know, it's, it's quite remarkable and, and that it shows that the Arctic is of, of high importance to Russia. So what we've seen is on the one hand, Russia has uh, corroborated the importance of the Arctic in, in high level statements, including, for instance, by uh, by. Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, uh, the Arctic has been highlighted as a very important region to Russia, of vital importance even uh, in doctrines. It's been mentioned also in the maritime doctrine as a, as as one of the top Russian priorities. And at the same time, we've seen also that Russia has continued its um, relatively high military activity, military exercises. Some of them were quite large um, in, in the region. On the other hand, we've seen that that the forces from the from the Russian Arctic, from from the European part of the Arctic, have been sent. Many of the forces have been sent to the front in Ukraine, um, both personnel and equipment. And according to the Norwegian chief of defense recently, he said that uh, Russia actually has sent as much as 80% of that force, uh, including from the 200 separate motor rifle brigade, from the 80th Arctic motor rifle brigade. Uh, Russia experienced many losses. Uh, also in material, there were tanks sent there, some ships as well from the Northern Fleet. So the force in the Arctic, while it's still significant, uh, it is weakened. It will take years uh, for Russia to rebuild that force. And of course, uh, we've seen again that Russia still maintains an activity. And I do think that the Northern Fleet still, um, parts of the Northern Fleet have not been affected uh, by the war. And so it still has the ability to conduct its core missions. Uh, and this means that, that the Northern Fleet still has uh, the capability, capacity and capability to pose threats to targets 
uh, land targets in, in Europe to the uh, strategic sea lines of communications in the North Atlantic. But there is no doubt that this force has been generally uh, what Russia had in the, has had in the region has been weakened. Um, it will certainly affect the Russian ability to conduct um, many, much of the regular activity, maintenance of uh, of the military uh, equipment, weapons, and infrastructure over time, uh, but still uh, we have to, you know, find a balance in in the assessments and and see what exactly has been sent to Ukraine and what is still there. And there's still quite a lot, uh, quite a lot there. So, do you think as long as this war continues, that Russia's full-scale war in Ukraine continues? You think that they'll have to have no choice but to continue to redirect, redeploy um, military assets from the Arctic down towards uh, Ukraine then? Well, it depends what, of course. We are talking first and foremost about ground forces, right? Because, of course, uh, some of the some of the ships were transferred also to, to the Black Sea region. But, of course, Russia will not transfer, uh, you know, nuclear forces and, and all the supporting uh, supporting capabilities infrastructure. So and this is still a region that is of high importance because of the nuclear forces that are in the region and, and Russia will maintain uh, those capabilities that are necessary to protect them. Uh, and in that sense, I think uh, Russia is also in a, in a sort of uh, period of reassessment and this has to do with, with NATO, NATO enlargement. Uh, to uh, encompass Finland and uh, hopefully also Sweden. Uh, and that uh, because this was also, this is a step that increases uh, the security aspect, the, the defense aspect dimension of, of the northern flank of the, especially the European part of the Arctic, uh, increases that importance to Russia. And Russia has the vote that uh, uh, the Russian authorities said they would, um, they they are reassessing and they will respond. How they will respond, we are not sure yet. I think it will depend also what what the NATO membership will entail in terms of military infrastructure, NATO military infrastructure, inter-region perhaps stationing of US troops. We do not know that yet. Uh, but that this is something that, that Russians are also observing. Now, of course, it will also depend what Russia will be able to do in terms of uh, rearranging infrastructure, deploying some new types of weapons uh, or more quantity uh, or higher quantity of weapons along the uh, parts of the border with, especially with Finland. So yes, this is something that is it's in a movement. We are still do not know where, where all this will land, but I, I do not have a doubt that, that to Russia, uh, the Arctic and I think in particular the European part of the Arctic as the immediate sort of given the immediate effects of, of what is going on with, with the, in relations with NATO in the United States, maintains uh, its, its um, high strategic uh, importance to Russia. Yeah, I mean, if you look back, I mean, to the years before the invasion of Ukraine, Russia had been engaging in quite a substantial military buildup in the Arctic for five or ten years prior to that, and um, many observers were speculating at what their what their end game, what what's their true motivation. Of course, Russia is notoriously difficult to figure out how they see their own national interest. But what does that say to you? What what is it mostly to protect their nuclear forces um, in the Kola Peninsula? This this military buildup, or was there other calculations, geopolitical, geostrategic calculations that were at play during this uh, Arctic military buildup of the of the 2010s? So, 
on the one hand, the Russian military in the Arctic deteriorated considerably uh, after the fall, uh, even before, you know, the years um, preceding the fall of the Soviet Union, of course, in the 1990s. So, uh, you know, similarly to many other parts of the Russian military, uh, also the Arctic uh, forces and infrastructure got depleted and deteriorated. So Russia had to re, you know, re re-establish, modernize as a part of the large-scale modernization process and reforms uh, that were started in 2008. So that was part of the process. When it comes to motivations, uh, I think the uh, nuclear um, presence of, of the nuclear forces in the region and the fact that the Northern Fleet is still the, the strongest part of the Russian Navy, which, as you know, is is divided between four main naval theaters, and of course we have also the Caspian flotilla. This also played a role. So, so the Arctic remained critical, has remained critical to Russian military doctrine, to Russian military strategy, uh, particularly when it comes to strategic deterrence work, which consists of both of nuclear and non-nuclear uh, missions and capabilities. And and this has this has been an important driver, and and we've seen also that. That nuclear forces have been uh, have been at the very top of the priority list when it comes to military modernization, and this has been driving a lot of a lot of military activity in the region as well. Um, at the same time, Russia also has been concerned by the fact that the Arctic, which was previously naturally protected by the by the ice and inaccessible to foreign actors, both civilian and military, and now is opening, is getting more accessible. And there has been certainly a quite uh, extensive international attention devoted to the North. And this was driven by climate change, of course, and the fact that the Arctic is warming up. You know, for a long time, we thought twice as fast as the global average. We know that this is actually, the rate is much, much faster up to three, four times in some parts of the Arctic is even up to seven times, according to uh, some recent studies. And this, of course, so that has been driving the attention. The energy resources at some point have been driving the attention, international attention throughout the region. Uh, when the U.S. Geological Survey, for instance, in 2001, stated that there is, you know, in the Arctic is 25 percent of uh, undiscovered, you know, this global potential for for energy resources. We had uh, war in Iraq. The prices were very high. Energy prices were high, which made also the prospects for exploration in the Arctic much more uh, realistic. And of course, since around 2007, 2008, it was also the Russian, Russian policies, Russian belligerence, Russian assertiveness, including in the Arctic. And that was driving the international attention. And of course, we had the war in Georgia and annexation of Crimea. And now the reinvasion of Ukraine, which which also, you know, direct attention to to the Russian presence in the Arctic. Uh, because even if it may seem quite remote to many, this is this region is closely interconnected with other geopolitical security spaces, let's say, and certainly in the Russian strategic thinking. So should there be some, you know, confrontation, direct confrontation between Russia and another great power or NATO in another region, such as, for instance, Black Sea or the Baltic Sea, that these forces will be immediately activated, first of all, to protect uh, the strategic submarines, uh, this operation area, which provides Russia's second strike capability, but also... Uh, there is a potential that Russia could use this force to create, you know, open another front and, and threaten 
the forces, NATO forces from another strategic direction, threatening, uh, of course, the geographic escalation of ver- horizontal and vertical escalation in order to tie down some part of the forces, you know. So that's that's a possibility. So we have Russia that is also seeing uh, an increasing interest, international interest in economic activity in uh, in the Arctic, and that also requires some strengthened surveillance, control of the region. Uh, Russia also has uh, quite high uh, economic ambitions for economic development in the region. Uh, first of all, when it comes to exploration of energy resources, and not least offshore, but also the development of the maritime transportation route. Along the Arctic coast, the Siberian coast, there's the Northern Sea Route, which Russia hoped would be become this major international um, connection, maritime link between, you know, Asia, Europe, and North America. All these ambitions also require some kind of uh, safety, security, strengthened presence. The infrastructure in the region is quite scarce. There is a lot of dual capable um, assets and infrastructure. So this is also an element that has been uh, present in the Russian uh, security uh, defense assessments also giving rationale to the Russian military presence in the region. And we could add, you know, on the top of that list, also the fact that um, this region is plays a role in, in the Russian sort of narrative about, about standing up from the knees, you know, about the pride and strength of Russia, about its importance on the international stage. This region has played a, a, an important role in, in Russian uh, history and 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 development Russian national identity and therefore it's also a very suitable place for Russia to to play especially when it comes to the domestic uh, public uh, to display uh, military power in the region which resonates quite well especially with this more nationalistically oriented part uh, of the Russian public which obviously uh, constitutes Putin's uh, primary base for support. So we have, you know, just to re, um, sum up, you have military, which is to me top priority to, to this Russian regime. Uh, there are economic interests and there are, of course, this national, his identity aspects of that, this military, military development. But I think what, what has happened over the past 15 years also shows that the security and defense has a primacy uh, for the Russian uh, for the Russian uh, authorities uh, certainly annexation and the illegal annexation of Crimea affected the Russian economic ambitions and the development of the northern sea route and also the reinvasion of, of Ukraine last year also impacted the Russian uh, ability to shape its role in the Arctic to actually achieve the objective of the Russian government which has been to play a leading role uh, in the Arctic, that has certainly been undermined because of the governance regime do not work as they as as they should because of the uh, invasion. Your um, PhD dissertation back, I think it was two thousand six, was on uh, NATO enlargement, which uh, back then was a different set of countries. Now, with this latest enlargement of one, perhaps two countries, how do you see this new enlargement as affecting the? security situation, both from the Russian perspective, you mentioned that a little bit earlier, but uh, perhaps you can restate sort of mm. Russians, Russia's view on NATO enlargement and how that will change the calculus of uh, of NATO in the Arctic region. 
Uh, so certainly this is not something that is in Russia's interest. This is obvious. Uh, Russia's uh, One of Russia's long-standing objectives, uh, you know, repeated in the military doctrines, for instance, was to prevent strengthening foreign military presence to close to Russian borders. And of course, they achieved exactly the opposite. Uh, so the... Um, I think, as I mentioned earlier, security, the security and strategic importance, I think, of the Nordic region of the of the European part of the Arctic will certainly increase to Russia because of that. Uh, seen from Moscow, again, it's it's also potentially makes uh, the the region and including the Russian bases in the and the Kola Peninsula more vulnerable. And it requires some kind of reassessments, probably redeployment of weapons, uh, perhaps changes in uh, operational uh, structures. Uh, we haven't seen exactly what, uh, you know, we do not know what Russia will do because it will also, again, depend what, it will depend on what's what Sweden and, and Finland, how, how this membership will actually play out, you know, when it comes to details and practical solutions. But certainly that strengthens the um, NATO presence, the strength security, in my view, of, of the whole region. We've seen that the gray zones do not really protect they they just invite uh, great power competition so i think that that kind of closes this this gray zone this this gap in the nordic region uh, which of course opens also for a broad spectrum of cooperation between the nordic countries which uh, the lack of article 5 between them was preventing a meaningful deepened security and defense cooperation uh, and also cooperation, you know, on, in this total defense concept, which also encompasses all civilian uh, resistance and finding solutions, for instance, to gray zone or under the threshold operations. So I think, seen from NATO you, the perspective, European security perspective, this is very, very positive. But again, uh, Russia will not be happy about that. Uh, what, how Russia may respond, I think. I mentioned some redeployments, uh, perhaps additional weapon systems, perhaps additional uh, additional infrastructural changes. Uh, we may see some more large-scale uh, exercises in the region, but again, it will also depend how uh, the Russian defense managers uh, the war in Ukraine, how they are man- how they will manage to rebuild and rearm. And certainly, the plans and ambitions are high in Moscow. Uh, recently, um, we learned that uh, the defense spending is going to increase quite significantly. So in 2021, the defense spending was 2.7% of GDP in Russia. It uh, increased, according to the official at least information, to 3.9% GDP. And, and next year, it's set to increase up to 6% of GDP. That's quite significant, uh, significant increase. So at least we see that the ambitions are very high, and I, I'm quite certain that this will also, uh, if Russia manages to modernize, uh, rearm, this will also affect the Arctic region. So we'll have to see uh, how, what will be the choices, what kind of lessons learned Russia draws also from, from the experiences uh, in, in Ukraine and, and how, how this play out in the end. The United States has also shown greater interest in the Arctic perhaps the last six or seven years or so, and uh, that seems to have continued under from the Trump to the Biden administration with some new uh, Arctic strategies, some of the, the military services having their own Arctic uh, strategies as well. How do you see the United States' role as evolving given this last few years of increased interest in the Arctic, even before the Ukraine invasion and, and all the other uh, consequences of that? How do you see the United States' role taking shape in the years to come? So yes, over the past few years, um, and I think I would point especially at the 
second half of Trump's administration, actually, there's been more uh, movement, more focus, more concrete presence. And we've seen, for instance, that the United States have been uh, increasing presence of some occasional presence of strategic capabilities, such as, for instance, aircraft carriers, you know, it's in the Harry S. Truman strike group uh, that participated in the NATO exercise in uh, Trident Juncture in the region, 2019. Um, some other, uh, you know, surface naval presence has been on an increase, operating north of the Arctic Circle. There are many conducted um, exercises, joint exercises in the Barents Sea, in the Norwegian Sea, um, various types of operations, including uh, U.S. submarines. Uh, there are maritime patrols, of course. There are reconnaissance aircrafts. Uh, strategic bombers uh, landed also on the Norwegian air bases, patrolling parts of, uh, of the region. So there is certainly more focus. There are certainly more capabilities devoted to occasional presence and this way, trying to strengthen defense, send messages of deterrence. So that this has been the trend that, that is continuing, uh, in my view. I think there is uh, a focus in the United States to actually increase that. So in general, we could see that the Arctic, because of Russia's actions, but also because partly of, of I think it's a Chinese interest in the region as well, is it's kind of a platform for for, or arena for this ongoing uh, strategic competition or, if you will, great power competition, you know, in a this broader global scale. And uh, especially, I think, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, and Finland's uh, successful bid and Sweden's application to join NATO, this also will certainly influence um, the U.S. Arctic strategy. So again, we've seen also the U.S. that has been more present, but also has increased or stepped up its bilateral um, relations with various Nordic allies, including Norway. So we see, uh, you know, bilateral strengthening, bilateral ties, bilateral um, agreements, or including on on U.S. presence uh, in the region. The U.S. also established a new office for Arctic strategy, so which is uh, again this. A visible sign of more focus, more planned, I think, presence uh, in the region as well. Now you mentioned China. Now, China, of course, has been the, the object of quite a bit of uh, anxiety by some uh, Arctic analysts trying to figure out what their true intentions are in the Arctic. What are they really up to? Is it economic interest or are there other interests, including geopolitical and security and uh, military interests in the Arctic for China. Do you see China as an eventual military actor in the Arctic? And if so, how do you think they would assert their security and military interests in the Arctic? Yeah, I mean, can we really separate the economic and other interests from from, from the geopolitical considerations? You know, I've been thinking, I think it's relatively logical that if China invests uh, more assets, its presence strengthens. And, and China has been quite vocal about that this region is important, and certainly they have been very careful of highlighting, you know, uh, economic and certainly not geopolitical interests. But there have been some, you know, some pointers to that. This is, of course, also uh, important. So, I, you know, but my question would be whether if China invests much, wouldn't they be interested in protecting, even, you know, providing safety for this kind of operations, and at some point, security maybe as well. So for me, to me, it depends, you know, how uh, the Chinese presence, including economic presence, will develop. 
And I think uh, China has been very careful, you know, after this first, a few years ago, of course, China has been quite offensive trying to establish themselves, you know, especially through bilateral uh, bilateral relations. This hasn't worked uh, that well. Um, but they managed to increase cooperation with, with Russia to some extent. And I think as Russia's position continues to, to deteriorate, and I think, you know, militarily, but also economically, Russia is, of course, more much more dependent on China right now. We've seen that Putin has been using the Arctic in relations uh, with China to get probably some other deals, including, you know, its support for the war with, with Ukraine. So I'd say the Arctic appears to be this kind of currency that, that Putin has been using. And so the Arctic uh, was a topic of conversation with Xi Jinping when he was visiting Moscow in March. And also when when they were discussing that in Moscow, you know, Putin and, and, and Xi, there was a Chinese business delegation already in the Arctic uh, discussing various new Arctic projects. And I think Putin also demonstrated that he's willing to go as harder than what we would expect China, Russia would be comfortable with when it comes to Chinese presence in the Arctic. For instance, he mentioned a possibility, a possibility of creating a joint working organ, organ on the development of, of shipping along the Northern Syria. Which again, this is, you know, the Northern Syria seems to be so uh, sensitive. In general, the, the, the question of sovereignty in Russian presence and, you know, Russia being this uh, leading Arctic power that this that this would be much more sensitive to Russia, but they did invite, uh, or at least that was a proposition that was mentioned. We do not know really. I do not know what uh, exactly this will uh, lead to, if it will lead to anything. But that certainly expresses this willingness uh, on the on Russian side to to open up, to to give, to put quite a lot on the table. And uh, not uh, long er uh, later, in April uh, this year, uh, the Russian and Chinese Coast Guard, they signed a memorandum uh, which uh, opens for an extensive cooperation in Arctic waters on, for instance, joint maritime law enforcement, uh, including combating terrorism, illegal fishing, migration smuggling. And this is quite big because this involves... This means that this cooperation will have a security dimension. I mean, you, you imagine a joint maritime law enforcement with Chinese Coast Guard in the Arctic. Well, so so that's uh, this is a step in the direction of, of Chinese presence that goes beyond, you know, purely economic interests. So there is certainly, I think, there is a potential for that. I mean, this, this development, of course, can go in many different directions. And China certainly does not want to scare everybody. They are extremely, uh, you know, treating very, very carefully. But this is a point that I you know. This is an um, something that we know. We know that we do not know what we do not know. I mean, there there must be much more going on behind the scenes, behind um, you know closed doors. But this is certainly pointing to to this um, increased possibility of an increased Chinese presence, increased Chinese uh, ambition. I think as well, and and Russian openness to 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 open the door, you know, for China. So this is certainly something that we have to follow very, very closely. And, and of course, well, it has to be added that uh, Russia uses this as a, you know, as a leverage against against the Western state. There's, of course, no, no doubt about that. It's quite fascinating. I wasn't aware of that cooperation on, <laughs> um, on uh, patrols and such. I mean, do you think there is any, I mean, I think that Putin and Xi have said we have unlimited friendships and, and so forth. Um, of course, it's mostly that's maybe just rhetoric. But 
It, do you think, I mean, it, is, there, is there some some line that Russia would not cross in terms of its uh, cooperation, partnership, alliance with China? You would think that Russia's overwhelming concern with security issues might make them somewhat ambivalent and, and hesitant to really allow China to take too strong of a role uh, in, in, in any aspect, but particularly in the Arctic that Russia values so highly. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, I would say, you know, yes, but then we see that there, there has been a qualitative change in this relationship, especially following the annexation of Crimea. Russia was has been you know, more willing, for instance, to sell uh, to China more, um, let's say, sensitive military technology is one example. Uh, the examples in the Arctic I mentioned are also pointing to uh, you know, Russia not necessarily being, you know, thrilled and naive about that, but perhaps not having other choice, not having that much else to put on the table. And Russia is uh, putting itself in such a precarious position of being, you know, trying to, on the one hand, get more independent from Western uh, markets, from Western technology, but getting much more dependent on third countries, China first and foremost, but also, of course, the sanctions regime and the export controls regime, making it much more harder uh, for Russia and, and, and makes it more dependent on other countries, obviously. So, yes, I, I do think that there is still, and I get from time to time, some you know glimpses in the skepticism, especially when it comes to military and security circles in uh, Russia, about China and China as a potential security threat as well. Now, if a few years ago, before the annexation of Crimea, there have been a number of um, statements, uh, also military exercises in the Far Eastern District, uh, that were in the Eastern Military District, sorry, that were uh, obviously they had China in the scenarios as a potential aggressor, but that has you know gradually changed. Again, as Russia was getting more dependent on China and as Russia tried to play, use China as a leverage against against the United States in particular. So the skepticism is there. I do not think this is unproblematic uh, relationship. It's certainly not unlimited, as they put it. I think there is skepticism and, and suspicion on both sides. For instance, China supports uh, Russia including uh, with technology, so sales of drones, for instance, and other sensitive military, or this is actually civilian, but of course it can be used in military purposes, uh, parts of it at least. But I don't think that in China's interest is, you know, grooming competitive, technologically advanced competitor, for instance. What I think is happening is that China does not want to see Russia totally fail in Ukraine. Uh, or even though the war has had a number of negative implications for China, including the increased focus on Taiwan. So, but still, it is binding a lot of uh, U.S. attention of all the U.S. resources, etc. You know, and that's which means there is less for the Asia Pacific region. So, this is again, this is unfortunately not a clear-cut black and white answer, because you know it depends on so you know, on a number of factors. Russia is, I think, Russia certainly. Uh, Russia has to, Russia often doesn't have a choice uh, when it comes to offering China uh, what they can do for their support during this war. Russia has been interacting with China in, in other ways as well uh, through the, the BRICS forum, which uh, recently had a quite a consequential meeting uh, just a few weeks ago in South Africa. Is there any Arctic aspects to that forum, to the BRICS forum? India has shown 
interest in the Arctic. Even Brazil has, I think Russia is trying to bring Brazil in as a potential Arctic ally, or at least China. And do you see that form in, in other Russian outreach activities, this, this uh, recent meeting between uh, Russia and North Korea? Do you see Arctic components, those other diplomatic and uh, strategic uh, partnerships? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And Moscow has been quite vocal, actually. And I think there was a reason why they were vocal about seeking cooperation uh, with BRICS countries in the Arctic. Uh, so Brazil, India, China, South Africa. And also they mentioned uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which involves China, India, Iran, and uh, you know Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and uh, a number of other countries from Central Asia. And they also were mentioning about bringing in Latin American countries, maybe Middle Eastern countries. And I think that, well, one thing is that Russia, um, the cooperation with Russia and, and Arctic states, you know, have been soured, have been limited, uh, put on hold in many cases because of the Russian aggression in Ukraine. And I think that Russia uses this, uh, uses the kind of, perspective or prospects of bringing a number of bunch of, you know, countries that has not that much to do with the Arctic, not directly at least, to put a pressure on the Arctic states. And there have been a number of statements, including from the Russian ambassador in uh, Arctic ambassador, uh, Korchunov, who was uh, saying, among others, that, you know, that that our there, as long as, you know, that there is a difficulty in protecting Russia or taking care of Russian national interests within the Arctic Council because of, you know, the limitations imposed uh, because of the, the war in Ukraine, uh, then Russia will be engaged in, in dialogue with other, in other formats and in other organizations. I think they said that they will not try to create another forum, but I think this is something that is kind of you know, um, a, a, a potential a threat from Russia that okay, if you do not, you will you will push us uh, out or keep us, uh, you know, out in the cold in the Arctic Council, then we will create something alternative, and that this will not be in your interest. So, so I think this is uh, this is part of the play. I don't know how many of these countries, you know, Brazil, uh, South Africa, um, Iran, how much of Arctic interest they have. Certainly. China and India have shown such an interest. China and India has also, you know, research stations on Svalbard, the Norwegian uh, archipelago. But I, I, that is my my view is that that's what Russia is trying to do. I think it's it's to me it's first of all a way of pressuring the other countries to find a way back, uh, you know, put their leg in the door that was closed because of the war. And you know, of course, this is uh, this is uh, dangerous because that would kind of give Russia this, um, what Russia is trying to do is to get back, you know, with small steps, get back and, you know, kind of regain the international legitimacy. And so I think that's what they're also trying to do in the Arctic. Now, if we look at the geographical aspects of the Arctic, the Arctic is often, you know, discussed as sort of a monolithic place, right? The Arctic, and, and, and that's it. But of course, it's it's a very large region with different parts that uh, have different uh, issues and, and aspects. Would you see the security situation as being significantly different in, let's say, the North Atlantic versus the North Pacific and, and these, in these areas around that in the Arctic Ocean? And what 
parts of the Arctic do you see as potential hotspots? We've talked in previous episodes of this podcast on uh, the Barents Sea and Svalbard. If we break down the Arctic in different uh, areas, what parts do you find most volatile or potential for conflict? Yeah, I think it's very important to to keep in mind that the Arctic is certainly not a monolithic space. It's very, there are different, it's parts, you know, one big part of very different subregions. We have different character also from a military and strategic point of view. So um, the European is certainly, um, I think it's, it's particularly important. I mean, this territory, because there is still this point of gravity, uh, Russian attention and resources, just because of the fact that, you know, Russia has this important um, naval bases, um, military infrastructure, a test bed for new weapons in that region, which um, also holds the strongest part of the uh, Russian Navy and the largest shared of Russian, a largest share of Russian uh, strategic submarines. So this this region is, it, there is still seems to be, that, that's where the, the point of gravity is. That's where also Russia has been sending its most modern uh, capabilities. So and and of course the fact that uh, this is also the region that you know from economic perspective that's where a lot of prospective places for exploration energy exploration is you know this proximity also to, to the um, strategic lines of communications in the North Atlantic the border with NATO this also of course uh, plays a role and uh, that said Russia has tried to maintain for instance nuclear deterrent also in the Pacific uh, in the Pacific fleet. Uh, Russia has been uh, sending their in, you know, Boris submarines, and you know they also maintain a relatively high level of military activity in that region. The routes for the long-range uh, strategic bombers also, uh, you know, when you have ones along the Norwegian coast, across the Arctic, but also along the um, the Russian eastern coast. So. Um, so this is also certainly an important area, but but it seems again that the main major focus and, and resources and attention goes still to the European part of the Arctic for a number of reasons. When it comes to hotspots, of course, <laughs> Barents Sea, because of that, because the, the region is so important, because you have direct you know, meeting a number of NATO states and because there is an increased activity in focus because of the NATO, NATO enlargement, I think this is a region that certainly is becoming more sense, militarily sensitive, even though it has to be also highlighted that Russia has been much more, let's say, predictable, much more behaved when it comes to military activity compared to the, especially Black Sea region uh, and, and also to some extent the, the um, Baltic Sea region. We compare these, so that's uh, it's still you know relatively stable. It's still relatively predictable. It's still uh, relatively transparent. Of course, to some extent, there has been changes also in the Russian operation pattern there, and some of the exercises were quite provocative. Uh, Russia certainly you know exercised, uh, attempted um, you know um, simulated bombings uh, of. For instance, attacks on Norwegian sites, including intelligence installations in Norway. So, so it's not free from, from, from tension, but you know, relatively, it's still relatively stable. Yes, Svalbard is a potential. You know, it's a it's a sensitive area. This is first of all because of the um, legal, you know, disputed legal status of, of the island. So Russia maintains a presence on Svalbard archipelago, and Russian right to be on Svalbard is guaranteed by the 1920s Svalbard Treaty uh, that 
um, gear, the sovereignty over Svalbard, over the archipelago to Norway. But at the same time, signatory of the Svalbard Treaty got some uh, rights to economic activity on the islands. So the problem is that there is a dispute about the geographic scope of the treaty. You know, when, when it was written in 1920, we didn't have a UN uh, Convention below the sea. There were no exclusive economic zones concept at the time. And so part of the dispute is concerns uh, the geographic scope of the treaty, which, uh, you know, Russia says that uh, the, Svalbard Archipelago, the Svalbard Treaty, which also means uh, right to economic activity, concerns also uh, the 200 nautical miles uh, waters around the Svalbard Archipelago. And of course, Norwegian authorities, they beg to disagree. They said uh, this covers only the territorial waters, which they extended to 16 nautical miles, but not the rest. But in order to avoid, you know, tensions, avoid to be being too provocative in 1977, Norway established uh, the 200 nautical miles fisher protection zone and not an exclusive economic zone, uh, which would be uh, probably more provocative. And Russia never formally recognized it um, and has been critical to the Norwegian exercise of, of authority in, in that zone. But in practice, they did respect it because they allowed the Norwegian inspectors on board where they are fishing in that and that area, although they never signed the protocol, you know, never officially signed that, but, but they sort of respect that. And I think part of that is Russia's self-interest and the self-interest is, is in the conviction that, you know, if Russia challenges the Norwegian sovereignty, the Norwegian exercise authority, this this regime, then in, in around Svalbard, that means that could open up for all the other more than 40 other nations that signed the Svalbard Treaty to come up and, and, and you know, and, and exercise their, their rights and uh, to economic activity in that in that zone. So, and, and I think that makes it relatively stable because of that, even though, you know, at times Russia would be challenging Norway. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there is also another aspect of that treaty, which is also important, which is disputed, and that concerns military aspects of the Svalbard Treaty. And it's interesting because it comes, the dispute comes from the different translations of the treaty to Norwegian and to, to, to Russian. And there's small linguistic changes which, which make this huge difference. So to Russia, um, this um, Russia interprets it as uh, Svalbard being demilitarized zone, so no military presence whatsoever. Why for for Norway it limits military presence, so no permanent naval uh, military bases, no permanent military presence. But when you know uh, Norwegian uh, military planes would land, you know on land, or you have some occasional military presence, this doesn't uh, undermine the the treaty. But but to Russia that is a violation of the treaty. So that is also an important aspect of that. So that was not a very big explanation. Sorry about that. But of course the the problem with Svalbard is because of the disputes you have you can have you can exploit that in different ways. Right. You can challenge uh, the Norwegian sovereignty. You can challenge the the fact that the military uh, the dispute about the military aspects of the treaty. But of course Russia has a some presence uh, on the islands. And the, the debates, the discussions over the years, you know, pointed to, to the fact that Russia could exploit that for some kind of, you know, under the threshold gray zone operations uh, to challenge uh, not only Norway, of course, but NATO, because, of course, Svalbard is covered by Article 5. So that is uh, something that that was also, um, you know, subject of, of discussions over the years. One of the other um, Arctic areas, it has a bit of a gray 
legal status is the Northern Sea Route. You mentioned earlier the uh, the uh, the waterway uh, north of Russia along its coast that um, Russia claims as internal waters and has full sovereignty, full control over it. But other countries, including the United States, uh, see that as a, as international waters, as some sort of international strait. But the United States has threatened for many years to send freedom of navigation operations, send a naval vessel along the Northern Sea Route to challenge Russia's legal claims over it. How do you think Russia would react to such an act by the United States or potentially another country? Uh, negatively, <laughs> that's for sure. So the dispute concerns uh, four straits, as you mentioned, the Vilkitsky, Shukalsky, Dmitry Laptev, Hispanikov Straits, which, as you mentioned, uh, Russia considers or defines them as internal waters, which means, uh, you know, you have to apply for, for permission, etc., and um, the United States and other actors, they disagree and they define them as international straits, which means subject to the right of transit passage. And yes, there has been a number of discussions about freedom of possible freedom of navigation operations in the region. As you may remember, in 2019, there was a French naval logistics ship conducted what was de facto uh, for a possible freedom of navigation operation through the Northern Sea Route. Uh, without, of course, without asking uh, the Russian government for permission. This kind of exercise has been um, discussed ever since. I think the problem to Moscow, uh, well, of course, they do not want to get the legal status of Northern Syria challenged. They have uh, devoted a lot of attention to, to discussing that. They accuse the Western states about trying to internationalize the Northern Sea Route. And I think the problem is also that there is so much military infrastructure and capabilities around that potential route for the for the ships that would be exercising this right. Uh, of course, we have the SSBNs, we have the testbed for new weapon systems, uh, air bases for strategic bombers, uh, important military intelligence infrastructure. And of course, there's a lot, I would imagine, <laughs> that there are sensors, um, you know, they would be, Russians would be concerned what, what could be caught, you know, under underwater. So uh, there are some parts, certainly, of, of such a passage that would be more sensitive than others. So one passage through the Kara Gate, so the Novaya Zemlya, where is, is one such an example. Um, Novaya Zemlya provides Russia um, testbed for new weapon systems. There is important military infrastructure. There is the airbase at Rogachevo. So I think that that would be certainly a concern. And, and Russia has been certainly discussing this possibility. Um, and taken a number of steps, political, legal, military, to 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 deter, to restrict such an access. So there are new kind of regulations that were uh, introduced, put in signed in December 2022, which demand potential state or military vessels they have to apply uh, for a permission. And there are a number of limitations. There are a number of restrictions. Uh, when it comes to this kind of passage. So, uh, for instance, limitations that there can be no more than just one uh, of them at a time. So Russia has taken steps uh, trying to to repel, to deter. The Northern Fleet also has been uh, exercising. Uh, some of the exercises that were stated officially that the scenario of the exercises was to repel unauthorized passage of foreign ships and vessels uh, in, uh, in Arctic waters. So I think how Russia would react, it, it depends on the situation, depends on the passage, it depends on the composition. It would be one vessel, it would be several vessels. I would imagine that would be at least two, you know, given this is a very difficult um, 
operationally very difficult environment. Things can happen. Uh, so in any case, I think Russia could potentially take steps to block, to restrict, to use different assets. But again, it depends on the political situation. It depends on how Russia would assess the risk of escalation. Would they want that? It certainly remains a possibility. That's what they try to communicate, but that's a part of their deterrent strategy. So, you know, it's very hard to say how Moscow would assess this particular situation in the particular geopolitical context, what is happening in Ukraine and the relations between the United States and uh, NATO and Russia, and also what would be happening on the ground, you know, once once the ship meets, you know, with the Russian Coast Guard, FSB, or, you know, or perhaps, of course, um, there is a possibility there will be a northern fleet uh, also involved. Uh, so so that's, you know, it's really very, very hard to assess, especially in this kind of tense situation. Uh, there is less contact between the sides. So so I think the potential for miscommunication, misunderstanding potentially would be high. Now, icebreakers, of course, are one of the uh, one of the assets that Russia has in abundance uh, along the northern sea routes, one of the ways they control civilian shipping traffic and so forth, and I'm, I'm sure also in support of their own military vessels. But that's just one uh, type of uh, technology in the Arctic. Now, technology is one of your main research interests. What do you see as the technologies we should be looking at in the future, either existing technologies or emerging technologies, military technologies or other types of technologies that will shape the Arctic in the years to come? Yes, I think, you know, generally, you know, the the various key stakeholders, including Russia, the United States and China, they are in a form of a competition for AI enabled, especially um, technology, uh, military technology, but of course also dual use. I think there is certainly a potential for this kind of technology to be very useful for Arctic conditions. I mean, we've already on the military side, we've seen that Russia, for instance, is already experimenting, for instance, with unmanned uh, vehicles, uh, which Russia tries to apply, for instance, for, to nuclear missions. And an example is the nuclear power, the nuclear-capable Poseidon unmanned vehicle, which is, uh, is still in, in development, but quite advanced. It is aimed to... Uh, likely to, to destroy high-value targets such as cities, ports, or large uh, large naval groups. So this is just one example where where this technology may go. But of course, drones, both uh, drones uh, used in the air, uncrewed underwater, uncrewed surface vessels would be extremely uh, interesting for Arctic conditions, given well unforgiving environment and, and uh, operational conditions, enormous distances and often lack of infrastructure. So, so that would this is something where where this development is going. We see some drones are being tested for Arctic conditions, also by Russia. I think new ships designs. This is another possibility uh, when it comes to economic development. That is also of interest, given. For instance, when it comes to Northern Syria, some of the straits, some of the waters are very shallow, narrow, and limit, uh, you know, what you can what you can carry. So uh, I know that, for instance, Finnish companies uh, are kind of, you know, working, have been working for a number of years with, you know, potentially uh, innovative uh, ship designs that could address that problem. So, yeah, various sensors, new technologies uh, that will be applied both for civilian and military uses, you know, uh, maritime domain awareness and broader domain awareness, you know, also involving air and space capabilities. This is something that is of interest as well. 
But also this kind of capabilities could be um, sensors uh, in an underwater on the seabed would be applied for, for instance, anti-submarine operations. There is this discussion about to what extent this kind of capabilities, there is a discussion to what extent this kind of new technologies may actually make oceans more transparent. Uh, there is certainly potential for that. We do not see it uh, yet uh, happening, but that would certainly have an impact on submarine operations, including Russian SSBNs, uh, which which would increase their vulnerability. That would require also some kind of countermeasures because that would undermine uh, their strategy. You know, one of the most important things for the submarines to hide. So there is, a, you know, there is a lot of development. There is a, the various technologies, uh, including AI-enabled technologies, are in testing phase in the, at different stages of the of, of research and development so this is something to to this is a development to, to watch uh, and i think you know one of uh, concerns including moscow is that this development can or may affect strategic stability especially when for instance when it comes to some anti-submarine operations and so this will be also interesting what kind of countermeasures that various countries will be will be trying to make or take and what kind of technologies they will apply for that. And uh, just to uh, round out this, uh, what I think has been a really fascinating, um, really insightful uh, interview here, what um, would you say is the best way, now this is kind of a broad and general question, uh, but uh, any thoughts you might have would be be interesting to hear. What would you say is the best way to confront or to contain or to cooperate or just simply to coexist with Russia in the Arctic from, let's say, a Western perspective? I think all three, right? I mean, to some extent, you have to confront, uh, contain, and of course, there is a enormous scope of fields where you have to cooperate. Arctic is such an immense region with, you know, basically all all domains are involved, you know, civilly and military. It does require cooperation. You know, we had this uh, discussion about climate change. This requires cooperation, environmental potential environmental disasters, search and rescue, all this requires cooperation and coexistence to some extent. But of course, the problem with all of this is, you know, it's an easy answer, but the problem is that, uh, again, Arctic is not uh, an insulated geopolitical space as some would want it to be. And, you know, we had this discussion over the years about Arctic exceptionalism is that, you know, the Arctic has such a, is such a unique region uh, it does have unique set of governance and corporations regimes that you know span from bilateral, sub-regional through regional, and some also global frameworks that encompass the Arctic. You know, including international maritime law, you know, climate change aspects of cooperation. So the problem is again that, in my view, it is impossible to isolate that, that this region and you know just move ahead and ignore what is happening in other places. And I think both the annexation of Crimea and the reinvasion of Ukraine have shown how strong the spillover effect from this kind of uh, geopolitical shocks uh, can have on the Arctic. And not only that, we also seen, of course, the um, you know changes in the energy markets have impacted the scope and pace of development in the energy field in the Arctic prices, you know, the commodity prices influence that, how much uh, shippers, international global shippers may be interesting, interested in exploiting the polar shipping routes, for instance, right? So, so we see this as 
this is a region that will be directly impacted. And I think as the Russia, the United States and, and, and China and other players take more interest and more presence and have higher stakes invested in the Arctic with this spillover effect, this interdependence between the Arctic and other security spaces will be even higher. Katarzyna Zisk, Professor of International Relations and Contemporary History at the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies. Thank you very much for joining us here on Polar Geopolitics. Thank you very much. Thank you for this excellent question. It is a fascinating topic, so I am sure we will continue the discussion.